Hebrews chapter 12, the last two verses. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray once more. Lord, we pray that that spirit that is spoken of in those words might possess every heart now this evening, that we would come to you with reverence and with godly fear, that we would serve you in all things and worship you with that disposition this evening, that you, O God, might be magnified in this place, in every heart and in all our lives. O God, may these not be mere words to us, but rather the desires and the intents of our hearts because of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. God's people need to remember who they are and they need to remember where they belong. That's been one of the particular concerns of the writer of this letter from the opening verses. And chapter 12, which we read a few minutes ago, is the climactic exhortation to holiness and to peace. There's an urging of us here in this chapter to press on, and it's the uh, climax, it's the, the final call that's been repeated all the way through the letter as a whole. And there are warnings here as well. Remember, there's a a chastening that comes from God and we're not to be resentful of it or discouraged by it. We're to strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And there's a warning then for these men and women, as there has been at several occasions already through the letter, against bitterness and profaneness and profaneness here is that turning away from God to empty and to carnal things and as he's done often in the course of the letter the writer picks up Old Testament language and imagery and presses it home into the experience of these believers when in Deuteronomy chapter 29 the uh, Moses there called upon the people, uh, warning them that their heart would not turn away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. And we have an example of that kind of attitude, that kind of bitterness, that kind of profaneness, that kind of elevation of the things of this world over the promises of God in the life of Esau. And it's right there in the middle of chapter 12. 
We're told in verse 14 to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau then becomes the example of the profane and the bitter man, the fornicator, who sold one morsel of food for, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, I hope at least most of us will know that history in God's word. There is uh, uh, Abraham, there is Isaac, and then there is Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the older brother, and as such, Esau is entitled to the older brother's portion. But one day, Esau had been out hunting. And as the picture of Esau builds up uh, with the, the wives that he takes from Canaan and then the attitude that he shows here, that bitterness, that profaneness comes to the fore. Now, sometimes uh, you get uh, boys and men, it's particularly boys and men, who when they're hungry speak as if they're dying. That's what Esau did. When he came back from hunting, you would have thought he was at death's door. I'm absolutely starving. I don't think I'm going to last another minute. I need to have something to eat and I need to have it now. And what was it that Esau gave in order that he could fill his stomach in that moment where his appetite absolutely consumed him? His birthright. Now bear in mind that he is the successor of Abraham and Isaac, that he is the one who is, at least naturally speaking, going to inherit the promises that have been passed down. And yet because in that moment he's hungry, he abandons all the promises which God has made to his fathers and demands instead a bowl of food so that he can satisfy the appetites that are pressing in upon him there and then. That's Esau. And that's something that remains a danger for God's people. In fact, it's something that comes to light that prioritizing of one's immediate desires and that despising of promised blessings in the ongoing history of the Old Testament. And what's happening now in Hebrews chapter 12 with that example of Esau hanging before us and the demonstrations that we've already had recorded in Hebrews of the way that so often the Israelites did exactly the same thing and turned back when they should have pressed on. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking now to these Jewish Christians who are tempted to prioritize their immediate desires and needs and to lose sight of the promised 
blessings. And in order that they might not do that, and in order that we might not do that, the writer, as it were, gathers up the themes and the threads that he's been weaving all the way through this letter, that betterness of Jesus Christ, that one who is the mediator who has been set before us all the way through, the realities and the glories and the beauties of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And he's pleading with God's people, and by extension he's pleading with every Christian here to understand the privileges that we have been given and the responsibilities that come with them. And so from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, he begins to set up a contrast and then to express a concern and then to urge a conclusion upon these believers. The contrast is established in verses 18 to 24. And it's the definitive contrast which has coloured the whole letter up to this point. Now, actually, the contrast that is there has already been expressed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians and in chapter 4. There in verse... No, not Galatians chapter 4. It would certainly help if I were looking in the letter to the Galatians. It is Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So you've got mountain Sinai, and it's the Jerusalem that now is, and it's a state of bondage. And you've got the mountain Jerusalem, the city of God, and this is the Jerusalem that is above. And that Jerusalem is the mother of all who are truly faithful. And it's again that contrast, it's, it's that uh, illustration that is held before us from verse 18. You, speaking to these believers, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now, you have not come to that mountain. And the imagery of that mountain is the imagery of Sinai. If you read in Exodus chapter 19, you would get the whole description that is here boiled down to these few words. And it's a mountain that is tangible and terrible. It is right there in front of you and it was an awesome an awful, a fearful, a primarily external experience. It's described in seven ways. 
First of all, it is touchable. You could have laid your hands on that mountain had you been allowed to draw near. And it burned with fire. There was blazing flame upon this mountain. And it was characterized by blackness. There was a great shadow that came over it. And darkness. There was gloom there also. And tempest. There was a great storm that swept around when God made himself known. And there was a trumpet. And and the suggestion seems to be that there is uh, either this is the... Uh, The trumpet that might have sounded from the people of Israel or some kind of heavenly trumpet whereby God declared that he was about to speak and there was a voice of words as the eternal God spoke in the hearing of men and delivered the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people. And it was a terrifying experience. And they could not endure what was commanded. When they heard God speak to them, they said, please don't say anything else because we cannot abide these things. And so fearful was this experience. And so awesome was what was taking place on that mountain that if an animal trespassed across the boundary, no one could go and get it back. It had to be killed from a distance lest any of the people should draw near and be struck down. What's the message you get from Sinai? Keep back. There is awesome danger here. The people were afraid and they desired a mediator. Remember they said to Moses, you go and speak with God on our behalf. Now remember the honour that Moses is given in the Old Testament. He is the friend of God. He is the one who dwells in the presence of God in that distinct way so that his face shines. He's a man who speaks with the Lord. And yet Moses himself is terrified and trembles when he comes into the presence of God at Sinai. seen a drone fly over an Icelandic volcano going off? Seen the video of a storm chaser racing across the American plains? You seen the retrieved footage of a tropical hurricane? You seen the news footage of storms sweeping across the exposed plain? ripping their way through a city. You try and roll all of that together, darkness and gloom and fire and lightning, the trumpets of heaven sounding, the voice of the creator and the lawgiver heard. I don't think any one of us can really begin to begin to come up with an accurate conception of what it meant for God to make himself known in that way at Sinai so that Moses himself trembled and said, I am exceedingly afraid. I am shaking. Sin kept the people at a distance from God. When God spoke... It was the revelation of his law. 
and the law exposed their sin and they could not bear what they heard. Remember, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now if the mountain that was burning with fire that could be touched If that mountain, Sinai, represents the old covenant, here is another mountain that now represents the new covenant. And the old mountain was tangible and terrible. The new mountain is heavenly and holy. The first mountain, external and fearful. The second mountain, spiritual and eternal. And as there are seven things that were spoken of the first mountain, Sinai, that are meant to represent its awfulness and its weightiness, so there are seven things that are spoken of the second mountain, Zion. And the wonderful thing is, I think it's wonderful, there is no parallel between these sevens. So you can't line them up with one another and say, well, it's, you know, you might have said, well, this was the mountain that couldn't be, could be touched. This was the mountain that could be touched. This is the mountain that burned with fire. This was the mountain that was lit from heaven. This was the mountain where there was blackness. This was the mountain where there was brightness. This the mountain where there was gloom. This the mountain where there was, that's not how it works. There's just no correspondence, really. There's a mountain, and it's characterized by these fearful things, and there's a mountain, and it is altogether glorious. Here is the city of the living God. Now, remember that the Jerusalem below is Mount Sinai. This is the legal bondage under which Israel had lived. But you have come... Speaking to the readers of this letter, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so immediately now we are lifted into a different sphere. Here you have come to an innumerable company of angels. Now there were thousands of angels at Sinai, we are told. Here we have an innumerable company of angels. There are so many in this new mountain, in the mountain that is Zion, that they cannot be counted. There is the assembly of the firstborn, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. Here are the people who belong in this mountain and in this city. The assembly of the firstborn, the inheritors, those who are registered here. Their names are written down as belonging. And and you could perhaps pick up some of that language from the Old Testament, pointing forward to the blessings of this uh, provision of God where it shall be said this one was born here they're registered they belong their names are inscribed you have come to God the judge of all or perhaps to the judge who is God of all 
He is the one who reigns over all the earth. He is the one who is going to call everyone to account, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And I think here the writer is sweeping back over the whole history of those who have believed that he was speaking of in the previous chapters. And he's saying that they have departed to be with Christ. Now they are with him in spirit. And those spirits are now without sin and that's where you have come and that's where you belong and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant not to Moses who himself was exceedingly afraid and said I am terrified and I am shaking but to Jesus Christ the one who has established by his blood these things the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel Abel's blood cried out to the Lord for vengeance according to Genesis chapter 4 the blood of Jesus Christ cries out for peace with God so that it is established for us the Old Testament mediator was terrified the new covenant mediator he is present on the mountain to welcome us in on the first mountain sin kept us from god on the second mountain the savior brings us to god and the writer wants us to understand that this is our place and privilege notice how he says it he doesn't say to these Christians, now there's Mount Sinai and there's Mount Zion, which one are you going to? He says, you haven't come to Sinai, you have come to Zion. And that lays the foundation then for how he goes on. Because he wants now to express a particular concern. In the light of that contrast, in the light of that reality, in the light of the light that streams from Zion, in the light of the certainties and the assurances and the glories and the beauties, the angelic hosts, those who have been believing and have already come to Mount Zion in their spirits, to a God who will judge all the earth, taking care of all his people, to Jesus himself who who mediates this new covenant, whose blood cries not for vengeance, but for peace. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What is the author trying to say? He's saying it's possible to react wrongly when God makes himself no. And he goes back to Sinai and he says that dispensation was the dispensation of the tangible and the terrible, the external and the fearful. And there were some who heard from Sinai and who had a superficial, a shallow 
and a temporary reaction to what they heard. They refused him who spoke on earth. They turned away from him. And in so doing, who did they show themselves to be sons of? Esau. To what is the writer referring? What happened when Moses then went up onto the mountain to receive the revelation of God? The Lord inscribed on those tablets ten words, the Ten Commandments. And Moses came back down from the mountain and what did he find? That in the very days, even the very hours, after they had seen God's glory manifested on Sinai, they had decided that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They had made themselves a golden calf, which they identified as the God who had delivered them from Egypt. And they were abandoning themselves to sexual immorality as a nation. How could that be? We ask ourselves, don't we? How could you see God manifested like that on the mountain of Sinai? How could you be one moment trembling and terrified? And within a few hours, you're indulging the most gross lusts and idolatries. They excused themselves from obedience. They turned back. They rejected and dismissed what they had seen. That's just what Esau did, wasn't it? Birthright or bowl? Food for my stomach now. Or the promises of God held out. Esau is not in the list of the faithful, is he? Esau is not amongst those who were ready to wait for what God had said would lie ahead. And so it was with, with Israel. They rose up to play, says Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. Their experience is described in Hebrews 3 and 4. This is what they did. They had no regard for God. Having heard, they rebelled. Remember what the writer says. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God was made known to them and they said, we don't want any of it. They heard, if you like, those sermons that perhaps for a moment stirred them up and within weeks or days or hours or minutes they were committing the very same sins that God had come to deliver them from and this writer is saying you must not refuse him who speaks you who've come to Mount Sinai don't refuse him who speaks, because if they refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain so my friends what makes you think of turning back what is it that with the, the voice of God as it were ringing in your ears 
is a temptation to refuse him who speaks. You know a little of the pressures that were upon these Hebrew Christians. They had the external glories of Jerusalem still before their eyes. And it seemed to offer so much. Things that could be touched, things that could be seen, things that could be heard. And they wouldn't face the persecution of their Jewish brothers. And they might be able at least temporarily to enjoy a more peaceful and a quiet life. What about you? What tempts you to turn back? Is it promotion? What's the bowl of food that would tempt you to despise your birthright? Is it pleasure? Is it a good feeling that you get from indulging some kind of sin? It could be a romantic relationship. There are so many people that I know who have turned their backs upon what they once professed because in a boyfriend or a girlfriend they decided that they had something more here and now than God was holding out to them. It could be carnal peace. It could just be that if you keep your head down, if you just live this life now and don't worry too much about all this Christianity stuff, you'll be able just to, to get away without the kind of strife and the kind of pressure and the kind of difficulty that you think comes with being a believer. Now, we live in a day when a lot of people seem to imagine, and, and some people even teach this quite explicitly, that the God of the New Testament is somehow less than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he was awful. But the God of the New Testament, he's delightful. The God of the Old Testament was, was nasty. He's the Sinai God. He's the thunderer. He's the one with the lightning and the trumpet and the great voice that shakes everything. And the God of the New Testament, he's quite nice really. And you don't need to take him too seriously. That the new covenant is somehow easier. It's somehow lighter. It's less demanding. It's, it's something that you don't need to take too seriously. And the point that this writer is making is this. Christian, do not for one moment imagine that the new covenant dilutes or diminishes the majesty and the glory and the excellence of the one true and living God. Then he spoke to shake the earth. Now he speaks to shake the earth and the heavens. The voice that we hear is not a lesser voice. It is a yet more glorious voice. Yes, it may come, if you like, with a different tone. But now earth and heaven are being shaken. And all that can be shaken is going to be carried away. And it may be here that in the first instance, he is thinking of all those things to which these Christians were tempted to cling. The temple's going to be carried away. The priesthood's going to be carried away. The sacrifices are going to be carried away. These things will not stand. And ultimately, 
Heaven and earth itself will be shaken. All of these things upon which we rest and to which we cling, they are all going to be swept away. God will speak and only the unshakable will remain. And you have come to the Mount Zion which is above. You have come to the city of Jerusalem. You have come to the dwelling place of the living God. You have come to a company of innumerable angels. You have come to the spirits of just men made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You have come to the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. That is your privilege. That is what belongs to you and that is where you belong. And with that privilege comes a great responsibility. And there comes the conclusion. Verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Now chapter 13 is really a drawing together of other directions and exhortations. Most of the commentators would say this is the true conclusion of the whole letter. This is what it's all building up to, brothers and sisters. This is what these believers need to carry away and this is what you and I need to carry away. Because of all these things, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's the clinching conclusion. Remember who you are and remember where you live. There is too much ignorance in today's Christian church. We do not understand our identity. We do not understand our dignity as the people of God. We do not grasp our privilege. There is too much amnesia that creeps into the church of the living God and we forget things that we have been taught and we lose sight of an inheritance that has been passed down. And sometimes there is even an abandonment of these things. There is a suspension of them. There can be a turning away from them. And the pleading of the author at this point is in keeping with everything that he's been doing along the way. And notice now how he brings himself together with his readers under this divine authority. Notice, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire he feels the weight of these things he feels the responsibility of these things he feels the privilege of these things and with the people to whom he writes he says let us get a grip upon this so that it changes the way that we approach everything since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken there's the confidence 
There's the certainty. This is our inheritance. We have not come to Mount Sinai, which is being swept away. We have not laid hold of the things of this earth, which will be carried away in the last day. We have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God. We've come to the place where God dwells. We've come to the God whom we can know in Christ Jesus. We've come to obtain all the glories and beauties and blessings of the eternal and unshakable kingdom. This is your inheritance. This is your place. You have been made priests and kings to God. And all of this now belongs to you. So let us then have grace. What does he mean? It's almost certain that what he means here is let us be thankful. Let us rejoice because of what we have received. Let us understand that we haven't come to Sinai, but rather to Zion. Let us get a sense of the privileges that now belong to us. That the law of God, which once was outside of us and pressed down upon us, is now written on the fleshy tablets of our hearts. That what once was a terror to us is now a delight to us. That the very same God who thundered from Sinai is the God who receives us on Zion and makes us his own people and bestows all these blessings upon us. And so this grace, this gratitude, this thankfulness, and that's the way the same phrase is used in other portions. This is the very soul of Christian duty. My friends, do we know what we have if we're Christians? I'm not sure I do. I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure that we have yet grasped by the Spirit's grace toward us as we study the Scriptures, the wonders, the excellencies, the privileges, the beauties, the glories, the the certainties, the sweetnesses, the highnesses, the brightnesses of what it means to belong to a city which cannot be shaken. And I feel like I could preach at you, let alone to you, for hour after hour after hour. My friends, we need the Spirit of God, do we not, to show us what we are and what we have and where we belong and to whom we belong. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us then show thankfulness. Here is our appreciation. This is what was missing from Esau. I couldn't care less about what's held out to me. I want what I want now. I'm living in the moment. It's all about my present appetites and desires. Not so God's people. Let us have grace. Let us show gratitude. Some of you will have heard of the Heidelberg Catechism. A man called George Bethune, I think it was, uh, wrote a a two-volume, was republished in two volumes, a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. It's called Guilt, Grace and Gratitude. And it reflects the three major divisions of the Heidelberg Catechism. The heading Gratitude is the word that is written across the entire last section of that commentary concerning the Christian life. 
feel the weight of that? What one word sums up your response to the saving mercies of your God and Saviour? Gratitude. I am of Mount Zion. I belong with that innumerable company of angels. I belong in the general assembly of the firstborn registered in heaven. The God who is judge over all, he is my God, and I am one of his children. I am in Christ Jesus, and so I am an heir of everything that belongs to the new covenant which is in his blood. And whereas Abel's blood cried for vengeance to the God who struck down from heaven those who sinned against him, the blood of Jesus Christ cries out for pardon and establishes peace. What will that look like? Let us show gratitude by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What does the life of a Christian look like? It looks like someone who is characterised by a desire to please God. When the Apostle Paul reaches the climax of his letter to the Romans, or one of the climaxes, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. There's Esau again. There's Israel. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Or Peter talking about the God who has delivered us, who's brought us into his own kingdom and glory, who's made us his people, who's bestowed these great favours upon us. Once not a people, now the people of God. Once at a distance, now brought near, that we may declare the praises, that you might number out the glorious excellencies of the God who has brought you out of darkness into his marvellous light that's thankfulness that's gratitude to god and by it our desire is to serve god acceptably that all of our life may be characterized every breath every thought every gesture every expression every word every appetite every desire every step all that we say all that we do by a desire to honour him. Sometimes this language, this service means worship. My friends, when we gather as a church, what do we gather to do? We come together to worship the God of our salvation. We come to give him what pleases him. We come to do what he calls us to do. It is never my or your wishes or whims that can dictate our worship as a church. It's not what we like. It's not what we're used to. It's not what makes us feel good. It's not what makes us feel bad. And it might sound a little perverse to you, but there are some people who seem to imagine that as long as they feel bad, they must have worshipped God. And others, as soon as long as I feel good, I must have worshipped God. 
My friends, who is the object of our worship? Before whom is my life being lived? Who do I want to please? It is the God who has saved me, the God who has called me, the God to whom I belong. And so I strive to please that God in a spirit of reverence and godly fear. Do you humbly acknowledge the majesty of God? Is he glorious in your eyes? Do you think of him much, often, accurately? Do you think of him in the same spirit, disposition as those who came closest to him? Don't want to get too far ahead. But when people saw Christ in his glory, they reacted like the Old Testament prophets in the presence of God. They fell on their faces. They could not stand in his presence. Do you humbly acknowledge his majesty? And are you moved by godly fear? This is a, a kind of a reverent awe who was characterised by this? Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 7. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. My friends, this is the spirit that animated your Saviour. This is what carried him into held him up through and brought him safely out of every trial and temptation that he suffered here upon earth. It is, this is what kept him speaking God's truth. This is what kept his eye fixed upon the goal. It is the compelling glories of the new covenant that keep these things before us in Proverbs chapter 23 verses 17 and 18 do not let your heart envy sinners but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day for surely there is an hereafter and your hope will not be cut off that's serving God with reverence and with godly fear I don't envy sinners I don't want what they've got. I don't want to have what they have. I don't want to go where they go. I might look around and I might see friends at school or friends at work or, or people in the world. I don't need to look very far. I don't need to read many pages or look at many screens before I see people who seem to have it all. They live where they want to live. Their houses change hands for millions of pounds. They've got gorgeous bodies that have been sculpted by perhaps thousands or tens of thousands of pounds of, of cosmetic surgery and regimes of exercise that keep them awake for 18 hours of the day. They drive wonderful cars, but they live behind their gated walls. They seem to have the beautiful women or men of the world throwing themselves at their feet. They've got everything now. Or at least that's what they would have us believe. Do not let your heart 
envy sinners. But be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. What enables you to say, I don't need this, but I'm looking for that? There is a hereafter. This is not everything. And this is not where it ends. And it is only when you understand that you have come to that Mount Zion which is above. When you grasp that you belong to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, when I know that that's mine, would I sell that for a bowl of food? Esau did because Esau was marked by bitterness, profaneness, and fornication. And that life in which he refused the God who spoke and turned away from what was offered to him can be captured in that one moment where he said, I'm so hungry, I'd rather have a bowl of food now. And abandon the blessing of God that is promised to me. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Don't be Esau. He said it over and over and over again. The warnings are real because the blessings are real. And he's not, as we've said, trying to hold God's people as if they're permanently trapped between Sinai and Zion. But he's saying, if you are one of God's, if Zion is yours and if you belong in Zion, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, because of that privilege, because of that dignity, because of the compelling glories of the new covenant which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us never turn back. Let us never refuse. Let us never give up. Let us never put self and immediate self-satisfaction in the place of the God whom we serve and who we wish to serve out of gratitude, with thanksgiving, with an abundantly overflowing heart of joy, with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire that's Deuteronomy language again you can imagine perhaps even today says oh whoa hang on a minute you're talking about the glories of the new covenant and you're quoting Deuteronomy at us you're talking about this God who, who is so full of blessing and mercy, who lavishes his love upon us, who has brought us into his kingdom and glory, who has bestowed an unshakable kingdom upon us, and now he's, a, he's the Old Testament God again? My friends, the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. That's the whole point 
its moral purity with mighty power, that the God of the gospel is not somehow reduced, he's not somehow cut down, he's not less in his majesty and his glory. What did we read at the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews? That the God who spoke to us in time past by the fathers has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, through whom he made the worlds, who is the heir of all things, the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. God is not further away. God is not brought low. God is brought near. But God is lifted up. He is magnified. He is glorified. He is displayed in the new covenant in all his attributes in a way that Moses himself never saw upon the mountain. And our drawing near with confidence never makes us casual or careless in our approach to our God. Do you think you see righteousness in the Old Testament? Do you not see it all the more magnified in the righteousness which God shows when he brings down judgment upon his only beloved son on the cross? Do you want to see holiness shine? Then look beyond Sinai. Look to Calvary. Look to the place where God demonstrates his holy antagonism against sin. Not now in making the thunder to roar and the lightning to crack and the darkness to roll over Sinai. But in bringing down the darkness upon his incarnate son. And pouring out his wrath against sin in the person of his beloved. Do you want to see mercy? You see more mercy in God saving sinners in Christ Jesus than you do in God bearing with the people in Israel. Do you want to see grace? God brought his people out of Egypt. God brings us out of the bondage of sin. Do you want to see faithfulness? God has undertaken that he will be our God and he will never leave us or forsake us. My friends, what we have in the new covenant shows a God who is a consuming fire and he is our God outside of Christ this God is still awful A-W-E-F-U-L awful and to a sinner awful What will you do? We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, probably a reference to the giving of the law on Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Do you feel the struggle? 
Do you feel the temptation? Oh, if we could have heard the voice at Sinai. If we'd been able to touch the mountain. If we'd heard the trumpets ringing around the rocks. If we'd seen the darkness and the gloom. If we'd seen the blazing fire. Oh, that would have been a God worth serving. That would have been a God worth holding on to. That would have been a God worth honouring. Says the writer to the Hebrews. You've seen more. You've seen deeper. You've seen brighter. You've seen better. God spoke then and the earth shook. And the people who heard his voice turned their backs upon God and did what they pleased. God has spoken to you and me now with a voice that shakes the earth and the heaven. God has spoken to us and he has bestowed upon us a kingdom that when everything else shakes cannot and will not be shaken. And that God is a consuming fire. Outside of Christ, you cannot stand against him. In Christ Jesus, you belong to him. And all that he has said, all that he has done, all that he has accomplished, all that he has promised, all that he is, is yours indeed. To whom have you come? Where have you come? If you're a Christian, you have not come to the mountain which may be touched and that blazes with fire, to darkness and to gloom. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the dwelling place of the awesome God who has made himself known in Christ Jesus to you and for you. And he is yours. Because Christ is yours and all things are Christ's. Now what do we do with that? Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may serve our God with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen.